We'll open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. In our series on marriage and the family, now we come to a section of Scripture that I think is, is so important and often overlooked, addressing a husband's commitment to sensitive chivalry. A husband's commitment to sensitive Chivalry. I want to read the whole context. We're going to come back to this, these first six verses in just a few weeks, but I want to give you the full context. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, your adornment, must not be merely external, braiding in the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman. And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. There is an unmistakable attack in our generation and during our day on genuine masculinity. Genuine masculinity in general, but biblical masculinity in particular. Tremendous confusion, confusion reigns on what is a real man. I very much remember the tongue-in-cheek title and book written in 1982 when I was in college called Real Men Don't Eat, what? Quiche. I remember that title coming out and being a little disturbed because I like quiche. I mean, take a pie crust, put bacon and eggs and cheese in there. How can that not be manly? What does make up a real man? Maybe you could do an informal survey this week and just ask people in the neighborhood, in the office, in a class, what do you think a real man is? I think you'll be surprised to hear those answers. Are real men big and tall and strong and fast? Are they athletes? Are they handsome? Do they bench press 300 pounds? Does a real man have the ability to, as I heard on a commercial recently, drink his kind of beer in his kind of way with absolute control over his sobriety? American culture tells us that real men are indeed rich and strong and handsome. They've got it together. They're the kind of guys who have no issues and no problems, could easily be featured on the covers of Sports Illustrated and Gentlemen's Quarterly in the same week.
But what about a man who is an artist or a musician, a computer wizard? What about a man who may be disabled or injured or handicapped or paralyzed? What category do we have to assign genuine masculinity from God's word, from the Bible, to a man? What if you're a combination of any of those? How do you, how do we, how should we define biblical masculinity? I think our views about biblical masculinity can be ridiculous, but there's no reason for a Christian man to struggle with his masculine identity or the meaning of manhood. The Bible paints for us a very understandable and a very practical description and admonition for what a real man is. In its most basic sense, a real man, according to Scripture, is characterized by two distinctives. And I want you to be able to talk about this as singles, as married men, as women, as as young people, as older people, no matter your state. This is a great thing to talk about. When the Bible describes masculinity or a real man, it defines it in two categories. Be on the alert, 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. How can you act like a man? A man? You act like a man in two dimensions. First of all, you're a man instead of a boy. That's maturity. In other words, grow up. You put aside childish things. Secondly, you're a man instead of a woman. That's masculinity. So maturity and masculinity come together to define what the Bible calls us to be as mature, masculine men who God can honor and who God will work through. And our text for our study this morning, it defines genuine masculinity in, in two deeper ways. It's distinct from genuine femininity It protects that genuine femininity. It promotes genuine femininity in our wives, in the women in our lives. And it also is specifically defined by how a man treats all women in in general and his own wife in particular. The temptation of our generation are to fall on one side of that ditch, proverbial ditch, and to be wimps, passive, unaggressive, people who will, will, men who would gladly turn away if a woman is being demeaned or undermined. Another temptation is to be childish, not being able to understand that we're not little boys anymore. Now, that needs to be distinguished from a man who can play with dignity with little children. When I was really young, we, we, uh, uh, there was a man that was very close to our family. And I remember as a young child being terrified of him. And I have no reason. He wasn't scary in particular. But I just remember him thinking, he doesn't like children. And I'm a child. We're not called to be wimpy and we're not called to be so tough that we don't understand those who are weaker than us or those who are in a different position than us. And we're not to be childish, 
but yet we're also to be able to understand and play Legos with a child. There's a, there's a balance that goes through the middle that I think Scripture defines as being godly. Now, for our time this morning, we're going to look at the heart that manifests its masculinity in reference to a wife, but these principles can, can expand out for how a man, a real man, acts with all the women in our lives. Submission and authority are the backbone of God's structure in society. They're also the backbone of our understanding of the Trinity himself that we looked at a few weeks ago. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. In other words, we look to God himself for our identity, for our roles. But none of that, as we, this is repeating, that none of that flattens, uh, 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 makes disappear rather, the idea that we are all children made in the image of God. We have no greater dignity as a human, whether we're male or female. There are clear instructions to both husbands as the heads and women as the followers in the home. And for our study this morning, we're gonna look more closely into the leadership and headship of the husband and of a man. Now, Footnote, single men, let me just ask you, this, these are things that you should not think, checking out, this is for the husbands, not a husband yet, don't need to think about that. This is the kind of man that Peter calls you to be like now. Nothing will happen when you go down the aisle and receive your bride's hand. Nothing happens in you and you change and you walk out the back of the church, now a new man. The only thing that changes is you made a promise. You are the same person after you say I do that you are before. So become the kind of person that you long to be before God as a real man and before a wife as a chivalrous godly leader. 1 Peter 3, 7 specifically is written to husbands about how to treat and lead their wives. And these principles here are not only relegated to marriage, I think they provide a blueprint for how a man should think about his relationship with females and with femininity in, in general as well. We always tell the couples in premarital, Kim and I do, when we're doing premarital counseling that the, the person you are now is the same person you're gonna be after you get married. So let's work on who you are, not just who you will have A little context. This section in 1 Peter is all about being submissive. This section on the first six verses that talks about a wife submitting to her husband is actually in a, in a long line uh, in verse thir- that begins in verse 13. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Then he talks about civil authorities. He talks about employment authorities. It's all governed by verse 17. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And right in the middle is this section in verses 21 to 25 on Christ, the ultimate example of submission. In the same way, verse one of chapter three, wives should be submissive to their own husbands. And then in verse seven, you husbands in the same way. In other words, we are submissive to Christ by how we treat our wives. 
Karen Jobes says this, when read in its original historical setting, these verses become a call to social transformation with the Christian community, allowing it to become an alternate society based on God's redemptive plan, end quote. What I like about her words is she's saying, man, if we do this, we are going to act and look and be perceived as fundamentally and in an eccentric way, completely different than the way the world looks at husbanding and masculinity. Husbands then should live with our wives in a way that is informed by God's will of submitting to him personally. Let me say it as, as directly as I, as, as I possibly can. Men, God will call us to account for how we have led our wives. This calls us to chivalry. Now, I did a little homework on chivalry. It's a 12th century origin of a code that knights had with each other for treating those weaker than they were, not just physically, but in social status with honor, service, and dignity. Only later did it become uh, 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 attached to a man's treatment of a woman. But I love the fact that it, it basically says you treat anyone around you with honor and dignity and service. That's chivalry. And that's what this text, I believe, calls us to. So let's look at it more carefully. We're going to look at one verse today, verse 7. Three applications of masculine, godly, sensitive. I had about seven more adjectives, but I left them out. Masculine, godly, sensitive, chivalry. Number one, consider your wife's uniqueness. Consider your wife's uniqueness. You husbands, verse 7, in the same way, in the context of being submissive to the Lord and submissive to God's will, you in the same way live with your own or your wives in an understanding way. Now, it's a very interesting Greek construction. Let's just get a little uh, deeper than maybe normal. The Greek word for phrase, understanding way, literally means Live with her according to knowledge. Live with her smartly. Live with her with the right data points theologically to be who you are and to lead her in the way that God wants you to. Live with her according to knowledge. What does this mean? Well, the context is telling. It's about submission, specifically a wife's submission to her husband. Live with the knowledge. Men, look up. Eye contact right now, all right? First of all, we need to live in a way with our wives where we realize they are in the vulnerable and unenviable position of submitting to us. Wow. Let's get more specific. We are called to have intimate Biblical, theological, intimate knowledge of our role and responsibilities as Christian men and husbands. We're to have knowledge of what the Bible teaches regarding relationships. 
What the Bible teaches regarding headship and submission, the biblical definition of those, not the cultural, not the caricatures. We're to have knowledge of the uniqueness of a woman. We'll get into this in the next phrase as one weaker. The uniqueness of a woman. And I think we have to have knowledge of the specific woman that you chose to love when you said, I do. Men, you and I are called to be the living experts on planet Earth on your wife. The expert. When Kim and I took a premarital class, uh, my friend Stuart Scott encouraged us men to do something, and I began it. And I've adjusted it over the years. But he said, get a notebook. This was before Evernote and digital things. He said, get a notebook with notebook paper and start a notebook. And this is what we had to put on the front of the note, uh, of, the, uh, of the notebook. Understanding, and for me it was Kim. He says, have a notebook where you spend your life studying and taking notes on the gift that God gave you in your bride as well as the biblical mandates and the biblical theology and the practical application of what it means to lead in yourself this woman to put her hand in Christ more securely because she's married to you. I also remember him saying, don't be surprised if that notebook changes a lot over the years. (laughs) Not the biblical part, but other parts, and that's for another time. Do you know her strengths? And weaknesses? Do you know her emotional desires and needs? Do you know how she perceives love and how she gives love? Can I ask a strange question? Have you studied your wife? Now, don't, don't go home this afternoon and say, would you just sit there? I'm going to get out a notebook. That, that might be a little awkward. But are you an expert on her? Are you an expert, get this, on the fact that she is called to submit to you? According to knowledge means you understand the context, you understand the woman, you understand the theology, you understand the practical implications. You live with her according to knowledge, which is another way of saying you live with her as an expert on what God calls you to be and do for her, and you live as an expert on her. This comes from reason, from common sense, from observation, from discussion, from conversation, from experience. But most importantly, it comes from studying scripture. Are you an expert on Christian submission in general? Verses 21 to 25 on how Jesus submitted to the point of death, never complained even though he was tried and executed unjustly? Men, are we experts in the theology of marriage? What if, what if you were asked this afternoon to write a three to five page summary on what biblical headship, biblical headship, not your idea, biblical headship is. We looked at that the last two weeks. Would you understand what that means? Would you understand what it doesn't mean? 
can you define what it means for your wife to, here's the phrase, this is, this is fingernails on the chalkboard for many people. In Ephesians 5, when it says, wives submit to your husbands in all things. What does that mean? What does it not mean? Are you an expert in how your specific relationship with your bride can uniquely mirror the gospel? Are you an expert on how to glorify God with your wife? I say in almost every wedding I perform, what makes a wedding unique is this couple openly admits that they have come to a decision that they can glorify God better married than single and they can glorify God better with this person than anyone else. Is that the case for us men? And then are you an expert on your wife? Do you live with her according to knowledge? Are you sympathetic? We're going to see this in a moment. Understanding to the fact that she has to submit to you. She's unique. She's a gift. And if you said, I do, and she said, I do, there in God's providence is no one better on the planet for you than her. Do you have eyes for this precious gift that God has given you only for her the rest of your days? Consider her uniqueness. Secondly, care for your wife's femininity. Care for your wife's Femininity, one of the most controversial and misunderstood phrases in the Bible, specifically in the New Testament, is the next phrase. Live with her according to all knowledge as with someone weaker, or your text may say a weaker vessel, since she is a woman. Asthenes. Weaker, it means to experience an incapacity or a limitation. What does that mean? This term is not intended to make us think less of women and wives, just the opposite. This is given to make us honor them and be chivalrous toward them. It's intended to solicit tender affection, tender care, and tender treasuring. I find it interesting that Peter uses the word for female or woman, not the word wife here which can expand out the fact that men, yes, we live with our own wives in an understanding way, but we also understand the difference between men and women and boys and girls, and, and we, we can operate in a world that's going the direct opposite way of Scripture in a way that's uniquely and biblically masculine. Some think this is a reference to the fact that a woman is physically weaker, and there's a sense in which that's true, but there are outliers, there are definitely outliers. There are women who are faster than us as men, who are stronger than us as men. Just watch the Olympics. But by and large, as a general observation, men are physically in a stronger position than women. They're physically made differently than women. And that's, that's by God's design. Others see this weaker vessel as referring to uh, a, a, a woman's emotional weakness. 
Now, we have to be careful here. Weakness doesn't mean negative. Weakness just may mean not as, as firm or strong in some categories, and it can also be a strength. Weakness in assessment doesn't mean weakness in, in any kind of moral sense. My wife is softer than I am about emotional things. We were watching something on television the other day. Planet Earth or something. And it was just showing this beautiful deer just in the sunsets. And this, this doe just lists across and just stops. And she says, that looks so beautiful. And I said, that looks so delicious. <laughs> we look at things differently. But I think at the heart of this is something precious. This word is used in, Greek, in, in classical Greek as for a precious vase, a fragile, precious vase. One that was to be cared for and nurtured and treated with great care and understanding that it's vulnerable and that it's fragile. A woman is weaker in a few ways. She's the weaker person, the weaker vessel, first of all, in the context, because she's called to be submissive. She is in a vulnerable position theologically and practically. Men, we need to understand that our wives are called to follow us. That makes them vulnerable. That also should control how we lead them, how we're their heads. Do we, do we uh, fall onto that category, that, that, that side of the ditch that's just the dictator and you do what I say and follow me no matter what? That's not godly. Or do we put her in an even more vulnerable position by asking her to lead or to be the head and just being passive and, and, and uh, wimpy in our leadership? That's wrong. She's vulnerable. And not only that, she is in a weaker sense. This is kind of... I didn't say this, Paul did. She's weaker theologically. And I don't mean that she doesn't know as much theology as a man. In some senses, there are women who are far greater equipped theologically. But 2 Corinthians 11, 3, 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 to 15, both say that in the beginning, in the first temptation, it was the woman who was deceived. Now, before you say that's such demeaning to men, to, to women, it's actually worse for men. The, the man was not deceived and sinned anyway. Even worse. Husbands are to be aware of our wives' weaker emotional, physical, spiritual, positional state and to care for them and to build them up and to strengthen them and to live life, as we'll see in the next phrase, with them as partners, not as principals. I think the context here is primarily of submission and Peter has just told the wives in six verses to be submissive to your own husbands. Therefore, husband ought to be aware of that. Susan Foe said this, the wife may be considered weak because of her role as a wife. 
She, by marrying, has accepted a position where she submits herself to her husband. Such a position is vulnerable, open to exploitation. The husband is commanded not to take advantage of the woman's vows of submission, end quote. That's a good word. We'll come back to this in the coming weeks, but single gals, let me just say again, you are going to be called as a Christian woman to follow and submit to the headship of your husband. If you have not made that decision, know that that is one of the greatest and most vulnerable and sensitive gifts you will ever give anyone in your life. Choose wisely. Watch how you're, the men in your life, the potential suitors, the bows, the, the guys you might date, watch how they treat their mom, their sisters, the gals in the youth ministry and the college and the singles. How do they treat the women around them? Watch. Which one will you give your submission to? To sum all this up, the, the weaker vessel means that she's precious, like a vulnerable vase. She's vulnerable. She was not created to be in the lead as the head. She's precious, she's vulnerable, and she's subordinate. Commanded to submit to us. This is basic chivalry, is to be aware of this and to care for this. Man, what does that mean practically? We treat all women around us with the greatest Respect. I love to watch a young man open a door for any woman, but even a woman who's older than him. You let women go first. This is simple stuff. You go out of your way to help. You treat a woman like a lady, like a precious valuable piece of china. Resist the temptation and the stereotype of being served by your wife. This is not the old kind of archy bunker masculinity where you come home, sit down and say, iced tea, Diet Coke, chips and salsa, have it here. I'm gonna, and remote control as well. Man, God didn't give us a wife to be our maid or our slave. In fact, he gave us to be their servants. Going out of the way to be aware and thankful of our wives, countless ways that she serves our families. The dishes washed. I just, I have to be honest with you. I, and I, sometimes I've, I've helped with the dishes in the past and but usually I can't get to them fast enough. See what I did there? Um, I'm just amazed that there are so many tasks that my, my wife does every day over and over and over and over again, washing the same dishes, putting them in the same places, washing the same clothes, putting them in the same drawers over and over and over and over. The job is never done. Ironing and putting things away, keeping the house 
clean, giving rides for the children to everywhere, tutoring kids, teaching kids, on and on. I think this, this, this text, man, calls us to be aware of that, to be thankful for that, to facilitate that, honoring her as she demonstrates her femininity. It's learning to be a gentleman is what it is. And there are implications for parents here that we'll address in a few weeks. Believers ought to be the tip of the spear in our culture for raising masculine men and feminine women. I'll refer you back for some specifics on that. Uh, Dr. Strand did a series on this six weeks back in the fall that talked about this movement that goes against biblical trajectory. And number three, this is the simplest, this is the sweetest, this is the, this is the, I would say cherry on the uh, Sunday, but I hate cherries. So this is the dessert. How's that? Cherish your wife's companionship. Cherish your wife's companionship. Look at this last phrase. And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Boy, there's a lot of debate on what the grace of life means. There's a whole camp of scholars who say the grace of life is talking about heaven. And others who say, no, it's the grace that's in life, which is living with your wife. Is there any reason it can't be both? The grace that comes with life is living it with my precious bride, Kim, knowing we are going to heaven and on the way there together. Lest you think that because a wife is said to be the follower of a man that she marries and that somehow that that makes you special, Peter reminds us that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. We are all marching to Zion together. Tom Schreiner says this, so well phrased. Men should honor women because, why do we do this? Because they share the same destiny and eternal inheritance in God's kingdom. She's a co-heir of the grace of life. Here's the reality. I'm not gonna embarrass her, but I adore my wife. I love my wife. There is no one on earth whose company I desire more than hers. And I think sometimes of heaven and the fact that there's no marriage or giving in marriage in heaven. And I really see myself sometimes as the exception to I'm gonna find some cloud to sneak behind and kiss her sweet lips in heaven. I'll be perfect then, perfect then, so don't, my theology will be straightened out by then. Men and women, does your, does your relationship bring you closer to the Savior, to long for his coming, to hope that today he appears in the clouds and says, come home, and we go there holding hands because our relationship has made us more ready for that grand appearance of our Lord. For too many Christian couples, it's more like just being roommates just sharing the same address. 
Are you enjoying life as a co-heir with her, with him? Enjoying the f- fact that you, you're longing for heaven. Now, there, there, we'll talk about this in, in the next few weeks. I understand that you may be married to an unbeliever and there's, there are passages for that. But this one is about a Christian couple who both are inheriting the great and glorious inheritance of being in heaven with Christ. We should be cherishing the grace that we find in each other as Christians. Note the end of the verse, however. How you as a husband handle your wife and by principle your sister, she is more your sister than she is your wife before Christ. How you handle her has deep spiritual consequences and effects. One of them is this. If you don't approach that correctly, God will not listen to your prayers. On the other side, you may not even be able to pray effectively. Look at what the text says. Do this so that your prayers will not be hindered. God wants to make us considerate leaders of the women he puts in our life and a considerate leader of the wife he gives us. And if we do not do that in an understanding way, according to all knowledge, as a co-heir of the grace of lives, our prayers will not resound and redound in heaven. Why? Because guilt can impede our relationship with God. When things are not straight between Kim and me, I really struggle praying. I can't come to communion. I can't tell you, maybe I hope, hope I don't lose any credibility while saying this, but how many times we've been coming to church or about to come to church and I've had to sit her down before communion and say, honey, I, I gotta make something right with you. I cannot honor the gospel in my life when I have dishonored you with what I've said or what I've done to make those things right. So guilt can impede our relationship with God. Also, God, I think, will not be inclined to answer the prayers of a husband who is not caring for his wife. Who is God's daughter? You want to up the ante? You're married to God's daughter. That changes the calculus quite a bit, doesn't it? What a gift. I think this this text demands and calls us to cherish the gift of our wives. Proverbs 31.10 says, an excellent wife, who can find? I did. And you did too. One of my favorite verses is this. Ecclesiastes 9.9 says, Enjoy life with the woman you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given you under the sun for, listen to this, this, or literally, she is your reward in life. Your wife is God's reward. And outside of your salvation, the greatest gift, men, he will give you on this planet. I think the reason that biblical complementarianism has taken such a beating and 
and been misunderstood so badly in recent years is because Christian men are not living with our wives according to knowledge and in understanding ways. We are called to be the examples of this in a way where the world says, she's to submit to you and she would say, if you knew him, you would know why I want to. I'm not sure you could find a godly woman who would not flourish and delight in being loved and led like scripture calls men to do in this passage. Why? Why become this kind of husband? Because to do this is to maximize marriage. God is not the the cosmic killjoy throwing down lightning bolts and saying, do what I say because it makes me smile and I elbow the angels and say, look what I did. He has given us his commands because to obey them is to enjoy and maximize the gift of marriage in the ways that he designed it to be. So do you consider your wife's uniqueness, her person, her role, who she is, what God has called her to be, that she's to submit to you? Do you care for your wife's femininity? Are you the man of the house? The head, the leader, who she would gladly follow and gladly exercise submission toward. And do you cherish your wife's companionship? Is someone on the road to glory to enjoy on the way? Ah, I was praying this week about us. I was praying a lot about me in this passage and how my conversations were going to go after Sunday. I kind of kept saying, honey, 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 honey. But in praying for us as men, what, what, would, what would Kansas City think if we had husbands that looked like and acted like this? Because if we had husbands that look and act like this because they've loved the Lord Jesus, they've given him their life, they've submitted to his lordship, they've been saved by his grace, they believe in his, his cross for their sin, they've anchored themselves to his resurrection, then you would see a group of wives submitting to those men and it wouldn't be anything near the caricature, caricature that the world says submission is. Think that a godly woman who was married to a godly man like this would never balk at his headship or her submission. Let me pray.